All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What's going on, y'all? This is Questlove, and on behalf of the QLS family, we're going to celebrate the life, the light, and the legacy of the great Wayne Shorter, an absolute master of his craft, be it with his beginnings with the Art Blakey Jazz Messengers or with his mind-blowing work with one of the greatest quintets in jazz music. Of course, I'm talking about his tenure with Miles Davis. Also with the occasional side gig with Donald Byrd or McCoy Tyner or Herbie Hancock, Tony Williams, Lee Morgan, Freddie Hubbard, Carlos Santana, Cindy Blackman Santana, Marcus Miller, and even an opera with the great Esperanza Spalding. And of course, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention his spellbinding work with one of the greatest creatives of musicians ever gathered. Of course, I'm talking about Weather Report. We got to speak to Wayne, Brother Wayne, uh, June of 2022. He was happy to share his work about his journey as a musician, as a creative, as a Buddhist, and as a human being. We just want to offer condolences to his family, to his friends and his loved ones, and we celebrate his life's work. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. Your host, Questlove. Oh, I'm sorry. Our, our, you know, our recently awarded Webby award-winning Questlove Supreme. Three times. Is this the third one? I have yet I've yet to see those trophies, but I I, I trust that we've won those things. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, in the record books. Do you know who they're sending those to, Laya, at all? Um I don't know, somebody in the sky. I have no idea. But there are a lot of emails being sent, so there's there's uh <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, uh, you know, somewhere out there uh, they're they're living their dream as Questlove Supreme uh, Award winners, but you know, that's neither here nor there. You know, because besides getting actual statues and accolades, I'll say that the joy of doing this podcast is, you know, it's just every episode we just get educated legend after legend after legend. And today is absolutely positively no exception to that rule. Um, simply put, today our guest is probably one of the uh, greatest musicians, one of the greatest composers 
one of the greatest band leaders, probably one of the greatest improvisers. I mean, when you really talk about the, the, the genre of, of, of free jazz and fusion or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, our, our guest is, is beyond pioneer. Like I see him more as, as a painter, as an artist who probably I'll say that his greatest weapon is just his ability to create synesthesia in us with the colors that he paints with his, with his compositions and with his, uh, with, with his actual playing, probably one of the greatest time travels of music. I mean, every, Ever. He's yeah. played with everybody. <laughs> every every project of a story career from being a member of the, the legendary Art Blakey Jazz Messengers, mm. you know, playing with like Lee Morgan, Bobby Timmons, mm -hmm. Amy Merritt. Um, one of the I mean, one of the prime architects of, of the greatest quintess in the history of jazz with with Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter and Tony Williams with uh, uh, what we call the second great quintet. Mm. Um even down to forming a weather report with Joe Zemano and playing with like Jaco Pastores and Alfonso Johnson and Victor Bailey and all these greats, um, even to his own work. I, if I, if, if I do this intro, the show will be over before we even get to question. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome and give it, give us the honor of, of, of welcoming one of the greatest architects in music, not yes. jazz, but in creativity. Facts. The one and Back. only Wayne Shorter. Thank you very much for doing yes. this. Hello, hello. It's amazing. Hello, everybody. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it, 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 really, it really belongs to all of the cats. I call them the cats. Oh, the and, cats. Uh, I still even, call them the cats. <laughs> yeah, I even called the guys from the classical area. They were cats and didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So right now, where where are you speaking to us from? Where are you at right now, currently? Well, I'm right here in California, Los Angeles. That's where I'm, you live right I'm, now. I'm at home, yeah. Oh, okay. How long has that been your home out there? Well, I've been here uh, since 1972, wow. 71, oh, man. 72, but seven years in Florida, then moved back to California, yeah. Now, normally, you know, when I when I do this show, I try to go through the genealogy. But, you know, you you have seven decades of creativity under your belt. So we wouldn't even scratch the surface. So I kind of want to just do sort of random questioning. Now, you mentioned California and there's a myth I would like you to settle with me. You know, I come from the world of hip hop and, you know, hip hop has been very territorial. Um, you know, the type of hip hop that comes from New York is different than that of down south. It's different than that of the West Coast. Um, but can you is there any theory on why you believe or I've always felt that California has never truly gotten its respect in terms of, of, of jazz music? Like I've always heard that, you know, no self-respecting musician would ever, you know, stay in California. Like you, you would stay in New York where the the heart of creativity is, but what was it about California that drew you to it? And did you ever adhere to jazz snobs that, you know, or the jazz police, whatever, that always looked down on California? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Well, one, the first thing why I moved to California was a medical reason. I had a daughter who was a acquired brain damage when she was born. Mm. And then the, the four seasons on the East Coast, the doctor said she would get colds from some of the drafts and some of the apartments, you know, like windows and 
and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then she would be uh, have um, seizures. Sometimes she would have 15 seizures in a day. And they said, you have to be to go to a warm climate, uh, like with two major climates, summer and spring, or go to California or something like that. So that's we moved to, from New York to California. And uh, while we were moving, we found out other people were moving too. But they didn't have uh, medical reasons, but they, like Herbie Hancock, mm-hmm. he, he moved just before I did. Chick Corea, wow. Joe Zavnu, and all. It's an exodus. Yeah, they were. And I, I was thinking they were moving to where jazz was needed, in a sense. Oh, yeah. wow. You know, and I, I got that by observing Charlie Parker when he was out here. And he would, he'd be relaxing, relaxing in California and playing some of the places and picking up other, the, the West Coast musicians to play with him. And uh, I saw him, pictures of him rehearsing with Lenny Tristano, Lee Connitz, and, and the guys from, you know, out here, Chet Baker. And, uh, but Charlie Parker, he would play uh, a bar mitzvah anywhere See, with, with Charlie Parker, I'm saying where you were didn't matter. He he was, uh, uh, I saw him in a movie where he was singing Mario Lanza's Be My Love. <laughs> right, yeah. Forrest Whitaker was actually acting it and singing. Oh, yeah, Bird. And while I'm mentioning this, I'd like to mention a, a musician who passed away. I didn't know he had passed away. His name was Bernard Wright. Yes, yes, pianist. yes, indeed. The master he, rocker. He's kind of wild and everything. I didn't, I didn't realize he came out of the church when he was young, but he was one of the guys who played uh, uh, synthesizer uh, any way he wanted to, and piano. It didn't matter where he was. I'm st- sticking on this uh, where you are location thing. And uh, we have a little thing we say and talk about in, uh, in Buddhism. When you pack your suitcase and you're going to move somewhere where you think, you you better off. There's a little guy sitting on the suitcase named Karma, talking about what what took you so long. I'm going with you. So <laughs> you take you're gonna take your environment with you, and uh, never giving up is my motto. Never give up, and don't let where you are fool you. That's it. Okay. You you mentioned um being a practicing Buddhist. You know, one of the first people that I've ever heard mentioning uh, that they were practicing Buddhist was Herbie Hancock. Is it safe to assume that both of you discovered this at the same time or were you two a part of each other's process and and studying Buddhism? Because, you know, even back, I remember interviews as early as like 1971 of him speaking of his, his Buddhist practice. When did, when did you become a Buddhist? Well, actually, 1973. I, I, I took up the mantle, so to speak. I went to Japan without, you know, and my, my wife at the time, Anna Maria, she's mm-hmm. the one who passed away on TWA. Yeah. 800. Oh, man. Uh, she, she was nailing something on the wall one, one morning in California, in our first house. She's nailing something to the wall, and I said, what you doing? Three o'clock in the morning. And she said, I, I just came from Herbie's house this afternoon, and he was telling me about this uh, practice of uh, Buddhism. 
And what we learned from Herbie was he learned it from Buster Williams. He learned about it mm. from Buster Williams. Buster oh. Williams said he learned about it from his wife, Ronnie, Veronica, Veronica Williams, <laughs> when he was about fresh out of high school. And uh, so Herbie said, uh, why don't you check it out for your daughter's sake? Because our daughter was born with these uh, seizures and all that. So we thought maybe we would uh, check out the philosophy and see how it connects with our daughter. Uh, our daughter did pass away at age 15 of a grand mal seizure mm -hmm. here in California. But the, the wise practitioners of Buddhism say she came with, with brain damage, but she com completed her mission. Mm, and no. her mission was to ex expose her parents to the ultimate law of life, the ultimate law of, 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 of their life, that, that you are eternal and stuff like that. There's a lot of the same sayings, but uh, to, she came to wake us up, even though she didn't, she only had a few words, she only learned a few words to speak mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but uh, her life was not in vain. So we're looking at a lot of other people who, who kind of think something is in vain. There's no use to do this. I'm going to give up on that. I got I got a bunch of shirts out here. It says, never give up on the shirt. <laughs> I got you. So that, that's, uh, and it's not so much trying to be perfect and be a, a religious person. In fact, some of us who practice this Buddhism get wilder. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, you or, know, or, or anything you get, you get whatever, whatever report comes next. So, of course, I'm about to say, right? because the thing is, especially with the history of of our people in this country, with black people, yeah, um, I always wondered, you know, how hard of a decision was that to make? You know, because I think that black people were always trained to, you know, like we must only follow Christianity. And any other philosophy, like Maurice White would tell me that when he was sort of practicing his spirituality, that it was really controversial with everyday blacks because it wasn't under the trope of like mm -hmm. God, Jesus and Christianity. But for you to do that so early, especially now that we're more open to, I guess, following our hearts and, and, and following traditions and ways and whatnot, you know, how... Was was this easy for the people around you, your family members or your friends or whatever, like to accept where you were going, or did they just look at you like an alien? Like, uh, what, what? I was forty or forty-one, hmm. where when I thought, you know, like, like I said, I got it together. I know, I, you know, I, I can I can take care of myself. It's a, there's a point where some of us think we we know everything, that we can handle everything that's coming our way, mm -hmm. and when I was forty. I stopped to think about my daughter's uh, uh, seizures, how she came into the world with the brain damage and all that. And I, was, I started to think about this. I said, wait a minute. There's uh, some stuff I don't know about. So I started listening to uh, what uh, some of the people I knew. Of course, it was Herbie, Buster Williams, my wife at the time, Anna Maria. She started working on this 
listening to philosophy before I did. And I'm, I, when I went on a tour in 1973, July 3rd to Japan, and when we all left, it was a web report, we all left and went and stopped in Hawaii. And I stopped in Hawaii behind them, took another plane and got in a small hotel by myself because I was actually uh, uh, handling alcohol. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to be, be myself. We had a few days off before we did a concert in Hawaii and just get ripped. I got, I, not just get ripped and sloppy and everything. I got me a new suit, Panama suit, mm-hmm. and I walk around acting like I can handle everything. Mm-hmm. I went from nightclub to nightclub, sitting at the bar, talking philosophy, some jive philosophy with people and all that. And they told me, once you start to do this practice as a Buddhism, Buddhist, all of this junk that you have in you is going to come out. It's, a, mm. it's just like a water hose, a garden water hose that hasn't been used in a long time. And when you flush it with this philosophy, the first thing that comes out is a lot of leaves and rust and everything like that out of your life. <laughs> and I was saying, whoa, I thought I was, you know, so I was, they even had a, what do you call a missing person call on me in Hawaii. They couldn't find <laughs> oh, me wow. until it was time for, to, to play the gig. And I, I went, I got myself together and then joined the band. And they said, you scared us to death, man. Where? So uh, that, I had gone to a temple in Japan and what do you call it, received something called, I don't want to too many words, but Gojikai. Uh, Tina Turner has a book out on this stuff. She has a whole explanation of stuff mm-hmm. and everything like that. And I, I received it in a temple. There's only a little baby and myself and the baby's mother in the temple. And we received uh, something that we said we're going to practice this practice. So anyway, the thing about playing different once you start doing stuff like this, playing different, what mm-hmm. Herbie said was, he heard Buster Williams take a bass solo one night. Maybe you heard about this. I haven't heard mm-hmm. of this. This is classic. He took a bass solo. They were playing at the penthouse in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Penthouse nightclub. When, when Buster finished, the applause wouldn't stop. They, it was one of the longest applause the Herbie ever heard. And they got in the dressing room. He said, Buster, what you been doing? <laughs> Buster, Buster explained to him a little bit about what he was doing. So Herbie said, I'm going to try what's going on. And that was that was when he got, um, uh, what do you call it? That hit, the dead, the dead. Oh, rock. Okay, I wanted uh, to know how, okay, okay, yeah. okay. That's how Buddhism yeah. changed his sound. Okay. Well, okay. actually, people... So he didn't want people to think when you start practicing a philosophy, you're going to get hit records. <laughs> no, but but Herbie got a hit before with a watermelon man. Yeah, hit the one. Chameleon. Yeah, chameleon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I always thought that Herbie had a lucky star over his head. Ever since I met him in 1963, he's he's one of those guys in in school. There's another guy I went to school with just like Herbie bass player. He's a diplomat now. Eddie White, Eddie White, just like Herbie. 
they had this lucky star over their head all their lives. I said, man, wow. nothing, nothing funny ever happened to them. Everything good. <laughs> Just blessed, huh? Just you know, blessed. But then again, yeah. and I, I learned quickly, you can't count your blessings by watching your neighbor's treasure trove, you call it. I said to myself, shut up and be cool. And I, I, stopped, I stopped talking. I went to meetings. We had meetings at our house. Had a lot of meetings at our house. People, and a lot of name dropping of people who came to the meetings. You know, people who wanted to be movie stars and all that. Wanted to get this. But um, uh, you'd be surprised. The names are, you know, I'm not going to say the names. But if every, every now and then I would say a name of a person who came to our house to a meeting. And then somebody would say, oh, you name dropping now, you name dropping. But I, I cut them off quick and say, no, I'm not name dropping. I'm name lifting. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One question I have for you, uh, Mr. Shorter. How did you get the nickname Mr. Gone? Oh, yeah, I was in the, the Brazil, <laughs> and we all had 
we all went to Brazil to do a festival there. And the, the band came back to the United States early to, to do this record. I stayed another month in Brazil <laughs> while they were making the record. And they were making okay. some, some music. And they, went and named, they named it after me. They said, Joe's album said, let's call this one Mr. Gone. <laughs> I really like Joe's piece Young and Fine on that on that album. That's yeah, um, that, that party time. Yeah. Party yeah, yeah. time stuff, yeah. Yeah. I briefly met you once um at a festival. I mean, this is like 20 years ago, or 20, maybe 25 years ago. And just briefly talking, and I believe you told me that you didn't even start your craft in playing uh, clarinet and saxophone until you were like well into your teens. So, you know, and I, I really did, because we were in passing, I always wanted to, to ask you, so you're telling me that I would have thought that you would have came out the womb, you know, with, 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 with uh, ax in hand. How did, how did you discover your, your talents at such kind of a, a late stage in your life? Well, actually, um, I used to play hooky from when I started high school. I played hooky, go to the movies, walk walk past the school and going down to downtown to movie theater. And I used to go see uh, like two movies and the stage show. And the stage show was at the theater was called the Adams Theater. And there was Dizzy Gillespie, Illinois Jacket and his brother, Russell jacket and the thing called the jazz at the Philharmonics. I'm, I'm, I'm watching this stuff, listening. I was about 15 then. And there's a music store right around the corner from the high school. I used to walk by this music store and look in the window. I was majoring in art and I, I found myself cutting classes, just go look in the music, look at the instruments in the music store. Then I got me a, for a dollar something, dollar fifty, a little thing looks like a submarine called a tonette, a plastic, like a plastic flute at six holes. I got it. And I used to walk around the neighborhood blowing on this thing like, like and my mother said, whenever she wanted to get me to come in for dinner, she, all she had to do is open the window and hear where I was. Hear where I was at. <laughs> I know where you're at. So then I started fingering this thing. I no instructions. I just started you playing with it. And when I went to see the stage shows, I hear them playing. Um, and I mashed the holes on this little, it looks like a submarine. I mashed, I tried to mash what I heard. Mm -hmm. And then I looked in the window real close one time and there's this clarinet sitting up there among the other instruments, all vertical. And my grandmother and my mother got the money together to get this clarinet, which cost $90. It was a used clarinet. And the name when I said somebody's name, Elizabeth, New Jersey, on each part of the clarinet, they could take it apart. And I got that, I still have it. 
You still have I'm, it? Yeah. Oh, Man. whoa. And I, and, I, and I went into the music store. The guy who ran the music store was also, he ran the pit band at the Adams Theater when they had the shows. His name was Jack Arnold Press. Right. And he would take me to the back room and uh, started clarinet lessons, learning, learning to read notes, counting, and all that, patting your foot and all, you know, stuff like that. I did that one year with him. Then he got me a tenor saxophone, too, because he said, you make more money if you play clarinet and tenor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the music union again. So right. I got to mess around with these things, but I would start playing at home about six hours a day. Not every day, but six hours of the school day. I stand up in the room and just I turn around, there's six hours going by, I'm still working on scales, do -do 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 stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, then I listen to what was out there, listening to Charlie Parker, all the guys, Art Blakey, the Colonial Monk, what they were doing. And then I, I got, I went to the library and took, took out records, the classical, and uh, I got one of the uh, Dizzy Gillespie's uh, Monteca, and also I got Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Rite of Spring, yeah. Mm, right, right. Yeah, man. Yo, that explains everything. The fact that you would shed the rights of spring explains everything. All right, to our <laughs> listeners out there, um, real quick, Stravinsky's compositions used to cause riots. Like yeah. Stravinsky was the idiom of his day. Stravinsky <laughs> was the bomb squad public enemy of his day. Like he, he would make the audience angry with clashing notes and, you yeah. know, he was the free jazz of the classical era. And when he created Rites of Spring, I mean, just name all the controversial records that you can think of from Miles is on the Corner to It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back to even when like, you know, Radiohead sort of turned their Kid back on rock with, you know, mm -hmm. with Kid A, like all these experiments and it made the audience angry. But, you know, this... That was like one of the first examples of opening a portal of creativity where suddenly you didn't follow the rules of music. You had to just, you know, you followed your heart. And so, wow. Yeah, there's a story, the story that the, in 1909, they were in Paris when they first did the Rite of Spring uh, right. publicly. And it's a, a musician, I think it's a, a Montserrat or somebody, one of sitting next to another composer. And when the writer's spring started, he, he was annoyed. He said, why did uh, Stravinsky started with the bassoon way up high? It's an ugly sound. You know, something like that. And the other guy said, shh, be quiet. Let's, let's see where he's going. And every time I play that, because I said, Stravinsky started with something that would irritate people. I heard that somebody got killed in that. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. So, um, it's It was like the first mosh pit or the first uh, <laughs> first act of violence at a music, uh, you know. I always yeah. bring that up when people talk about, like, violence in hip-hop. But I'm like, you know, 
we learned about classical music. That thing started a long time ago. Listen, Lee so can, let me let me ask you, and I'm skipping all over the place, but since you you kind of brought it up, I gotta ask you. At the time, did you feel like Miles was going through his own Stravinsky phase in terms of like where he was taking music? You know, at the time when Miles was really stretching out and, you know, I, I kind of feel like that phase started with the, the last jazz record that you guys made, which was the Nefertiti album. Can you just explain one thing? What was the philosophy behind the title track, Nefertiti? in which you nor Miles took a solo and you let Tony Williams and Ron Carter just run rampant with experiment. Like that was just unheard of at the time. Like, or were, were you guys just like roll the tape, you know, Tio start the tape and, and just start going. Like what was the philosophy behind that particular, that particular session in which you guys did a seven minute jazz solo song with no solos in it? and just let the rhythm section go crazy. I feel like he getting the prop. I had to get something. I knew he was getting the prop. I knew he was getting the prop. <laughs> I love it. There you go. Let's go. You see this? Yeah. Nefertiti. Yes. You're holding up a statue of Nefertiti. I made this when no, I was you 15. Did. I was 15 years old. Whoa. Wow. And I got it from the school before they got it, got a hold of it themselves, you know. I made this. No. This is a a replica of the the one that they have in the Berlin Museum. Yeah. And I, I got it from the newspaper and I copied it in clay and plaster. And, and this is it from 1951, 1950. From 1950 to now. Here it is. Hidden talents. That's beautiful. Our listeners out there, uh, Mr. Short is, we're on Zoom, of course. He's holding up a white sculpture of uh, Nefertiti. And you did this at 15? Oh, yeah. This is on YouTube and people are going to see that sculpture. So that's good. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know how heavy the thing is heavy. <laughs> <laughs> that is beautiful. With Nefertiti, what, what caused you guys to do the repetition thing with no solos? Oh, yeah. Well, Miles... When we started playing it, Miles was, was indicating with his body movement, he kept doing like, again, again, again. So we go do the melody again. Da, 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 da. He kept going. And then Tony Williams started brr, 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 doing like a drum <laughs> thing behind it. Mm -hmm. And it, it don't need any solos. It don't need the solo. Because when we played it in person, Later, when Chick Corea was a pianist, right. Chick would play a solo here and there on it. But it was, uh, he said, he said, there's nothing can match the melody. Yeah. He said, what we heard, I went to Sweden and got one of those uh, awards in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they made an arrangement of Nefertiti, which is the Baddest arrangement I've heard so far is mm. with the orchestra there. They man, they tore it up, and they didn't they didn't solo or they they just did the melody and and put clothes on it, <laughs> put a costume on it that was like like only the Swedish 
the Europeans and their artistic, you know, they were saying, we understand. Always. They were saying, we understand where, where you want to go mm-hmm. and where you could go. How about this? So with, with Miles, it was after Nefertiti that Miles did the Bitches Brew. Mm-hmm. It's like he he also he also wanted to start writing music where he would get get the publishing, <laughs> you know, royalties from publishing, mm-hmm. songwriting and stuff like that. And that that one he got from Betty, uh, I'm a down home girl. Uh, Betty Davis. That's that was hers. Her lyrics and everything. But he made just a melody out of. And that's when he crossed over into concert halls from the nightclubs into concert halls. And here's here's the funny thing. He said one of the first things he did when he crossed over was a Bill Graham's the Ice House or someplace in California. Right. In the dressing room, we we only played like a half hour. And he got good money for it. Mm-hmm. So what it was, we were used to playing two hours or an hour. But this is the first time we played 30 minutes. And the mouse was looking at the, the paycheck that he got from the, from the organization. We were all sitting around. And we didn't look at it ourselves, but Miles was looking at the paycheck. He said, damn, 30 minutes. He, he looked at us and he said, I feel like a thief. (laughs) 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 So that's when he started, you know, we went to Europe and started getting those uh, concerts in Europe and stuff like that. And that's when he met Cecily Tyson. But uh, that's that part. But um, before Miles died, we all met in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And he held the thing with Quincy Jones Jones, and all that stuff. Wallace Rooney was playing. Miles' parts on the trumpet and all that. And then Miles got me and Herbie together and said, uh, what would it, he said, what would it be like if we got together again? Mm. And we said, That's um, what y'all were talking about? Yeah, mm. we said, we said, oh, uh, oh, uh, uh. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're trying to tell me, because the thing was, I, I, I asked Quincy, like, how did you get Miles to even agree to even go anywhere close to that type of jazz, which, you know, he, he had somehow avoided, you know, for at least in that traditional sense of playing jazz. And you're telling me that Miles Davis, you and Herbie actually spoke of doing something together again. Miles was thinking about what would we sound like after weather report and after headhunter and after all that, yeah. what Herbie's been through. And I've been, what, what, what kind of stuff could we, uh, conjure up. That's what everybody want to know. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So what he went to the thing called Dubop. Uh, with an easy mo You know. Yeah. And then he got the guys, Marcus Miller, and then got those guys together. You know, guitar players and stuff like that. But his his body, his body kind of dictated dictated where he was going to go musically. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he would have to rest while playing. 
Okay. Mm. And uh, to start a whole new something, you know, it's been a lot of work. And, but uh, we weren't supposed to get together again, really. Mm. But that thought was uh, like like uh, lighting, a, lighting a match in a dark tunnel. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No I have a question about Miles. Um, has he offered any sort of opinion on your work with Weather Report during that period? Yeah, he did say. Um... That was the only thing happening out he, there. He wrote, he wrote in a newspaper. He said the only thing that was happening out there was weather report. Oh. Oh, wow. Damn. Nice. And he, he mentioned some pianos. He like the happening as a pianist is Herbie, uh, Chick, uh, a couple of other pianists that, you know, uh, who were band leaders and everything. He, that's the only thing happening when he was gone for the six years. And he'd come to see us at the the, the theater in New York. Mm-hmm. And people didn't know who he was. He'd come backstage. They didn't know who he was. And we said, let Miles in, man. Come on. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Of your 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 first round of, of solo work, like the um like the schizophrenia album, The Night Dreamer. Alsi and I, like my, my favorite is Juju, but can you talk about what the creative process was in doing your solo work? Because I would imagine that if you were in Miles's band, like I, I would imagine that I know some band leaders that were frowned on what they would call moonlighting, like doing your own solo work. So I always wanted to know how Miles felt about like you and Herbie, especially like oh, the, doing your own solo work on the side at Blue Note while still being in in this this quintet, you guys were so tight as a unit. 
How often would you guys practice as a band during that period? You mean as a Miles Davis band or our own band? Well, I mean, just, I guess I'm asking, how are you able to, you know, maximize creativity with Miles Davis and also subsequently do your own solo stuff on the side? I, I think uh, Miles, uh, he welcomed that that it would shine on him. You know, it would, uh, uh, we, we do our own publicity, so to speak, which bounced off on the Miles Davis quintet. Okay. And it was like, um, uh, we didn't have to call Miles to ask for a retainer while we were off, mm-hmm. or when he was like in the hospital or something like that. It, we, we were like self, kind of self-sufficient in, in that way. And a lot of people wanted to play with the Miles Davis rhythm section. You know, they wanted to make records with the Miles mm-hmm. Davis rhythm section, but the guys were uh, like Furby, and then then there's McCoy. Mm-hmm. You had, in other words, you had the, the top guys doing things together, and and it made it a little difficult for anyone to crash that, to, to or tear it down, or uh, speak against it. You know, it's, wow, they got Elvin Jones. They got right. the, <laughs> the, he, even Art Blakey played. On one of my records, my first records, played mm-hmm. the drum. So uh, there was that give and take, respect built in. But then later, when people start counting, counting the beans, the, the royalties, mm-hmm. what sold and what didn't sell, and all that, there there was an effort, I think, on the record company's part to um, break up any kind of uh, uh, alliance that we formed that they couldn't get their hands on. Can't penetrate. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they kind of dis- were discouraging the buildup of, uh, like you'd be in Duke Ellington's band for life. Mm-hmm. But people starting a band from Duke Ellington's band or starting their own band from... Uh, Count Basie, Count Basie yeah. yeah, Erskine Hawkins and, and all that. They, they were together almost like a, a life sentence. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the only ones who uh, graduated in a sense, which be like uh, if you went into the movies like tap dancers and, mm-hmm. and, uh, or, or the, the vocalist. Yeah, have you seen Ella Fitzgerald's documentary? No. Yes, I have. Yes. Because she became the band leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, because I've seen you in a, in a lot recently, and especially Lee Morgan and Miles. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, as an architect, how do you feel in this moment of documenting all this history? And do you feel like they're getting it right? They're, they're doing part and parcel. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> okay. And what would you another, like? What did they miss? Them? One, yeah. There's another one coming out. On myself, a second. It's a, your second documentary about about you, right? It's a second. No, this, this is no. This is a full one. Okay, coming out soon. Ooh. And this is uh, I can say what it is. The title right thus far. The title is uh, Wayne Shorter, Zero Gravity. 
Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't speak of your your work with the Jazz Messengers. I just want to know in general, is is the Jazz Messengers like your first actual like professional big gig just in terms of you being with with the unit? Yeah. Yeah, Messengers. How did you I know you're from you were from Newark. I know that, you know, America was in such a a chaotic sort of place, especially for black people. What was it like as as a person that was able to leave America and start touring the world and, and going overseas and all those things to see what effect did that have on you? Well, actually, I was working with Maynard Ferguson's band. Okay. You know, Maynard Ferguson's big band yeah. for about three weeks. And one time we were working at Birdland and the, the, the waiter said, there's a telephone call for Wayne. So I Blake, he's on the phone. Said so Lee Morgan had come to Newark, New Jersey, and played a, a session with John Coltrane. And about midnight, they, Lee kept, called my house. He heard about me. He called my house for if I could go and play with them. In the last number, they were playing a night in Tunisia at a nightclub in Newark. And I went, got my stuff together, and played on the last number with Lee Morgan and John Coltrane. And then, night in Tunisia? Yeah. Oh. yeah. It was a jam session. And Lee had been going around to the jam sessions, listening to people. And we worked in Newark with Dizzy Gillespie's big band with the drummer Charlie Persip from Newark mm -hmm. and all that. I was at the place called Sugar Hill. By the way, that's the place I saw Billie Holiday before I went in the army. Mm. She was at Sugar Hill in Newark. You making my and eyes I, water, Wayne. It's too much. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> right, yeah. everybody. Right. Yeah, the longest month they was all in there. And anyway, when I got out of the army, that's when Lee called me and said, I'm playing with John Coltrane in Newark at midnight. We're going to play one more number. Can you come? Because I heard about you. So I went and played. Then when I got with Maynard Ferguson's band, we were playing in Canada at a racetrack, Canadian Exposition, you call it. And during the break, Ahmed Jamal and Sarah Vaughn, they were doing a break. Here comes Lee Morgan running across the, red, the, the racetrack. He came up to me. I'm sitting in the, in the audience. He said, you want to be with the messengers? You want to be with the messengers? I said, yeah. He said, come with me. And I went to a tent. There's R. Blakey sitting there. And I said, he said, Lee Morgan is the apple of my eye. And I, and I trust what he said. He, the art never heard me, really. He said, do you want to be in my band? I said, yeah. So he called Birdland. Well, I was still playing with Maynard Ferguson's band. Mm -hmm. He called Birdland and told Maynard Ferguson that Wayne is a fighter pilot. He's, he's not in the, he doesn't work with bombers. <laughs> like big man. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a fighter pilot. So Maynard said, if you can find somebody to take his place, I'm, I'm, it's okay. And I found somebody. Real good cat, too. And then I flew from there to Fr French Lick, Indiana, big festival with the messengers, Miles Davis, all of them, they were all there. And I'm, I'm, that was the start of my 
my gig with the Jazz Messengers. And here's one of the big pieces of advice that I got, we got from Mark Blakey. When we went to Europe, Art said, don't try to razzle-dazzle and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, people in uh, how much you know about jazz and bebop and everything, how much you know. Don't try to show off. Yeah, show off and everything that because the only thing they're going to remember is your behavior. He said, okay, your behavior. I was cool. Me and Lee, we were cool and everything. So the behavior was like a, a guide for us wherever we went to just be cool, play play what you play. We were the coolest dressers too, everything, you know. And uh, so I was with, with them for five years, five years with the jazz messengers. And uh, just be cool. Yeah. Don't pat your foot. Don't pat your foot, William. <laughs> <laughs> that Lee Morgan documentary is everything. Mm. Nah, that was great. Mm -hmm. uh, one question uh, I have for you, Mr. Shorter, was about uh, one of my favorite saxophonists, Cannonball Adderley. Yeah. Um, you talk about just your work with him and uh, like you guys' relationship. Uh, what was what was he like? Well, Cannonball was he was cool. He was a uh, very kind of not not jovial, but he he liked to have a good time, mm -hmm. and uh, he liked to he he liked to have the bounce in his music. You know, and uh, uh, yeah. They had a, a nice uh, combination with Miles and all that. And I didn't, I didn't, I, it was the combination of J.J. Johnson, Sonny Stitt, and Miles, too. Then it was real short. I, I did, these people like Cannonball, J.J. Johnson, I played on J.J. Johnson's last record. Yeah. Cannonball, I saw him last at the Blue Note. In the lower part of uh, uh, New York, near the Holland Tunnel, mm -hmm. and uh, him and his brother Nat, we, we had mm -hmm. conversations and stuff about life and stuff. But uh, that thing about being a, a school teacher, that that was very evident in his uh, mannerism when he talked about music and stuff like that. He was still uh, attached to being a a teacher in Florida. I know he taught in okay. schools in Florida, something like that. And but but then there's there's the other ones. There's ones and they had the there's there's some alto saxophone players that my my brother was crazy about one named Ernie Henry. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. there was a Danny Quebec who did the, the opening of Round Midnight. Do -do 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 -do. You know, that I I Beck's nephew. Uh, there's names of people that had sound. Wardell Gray. Wardell Gray. Wardell Gray. And and it's worth it. Wardell Gray and uh, my man who just who did the round midnight. We used to, we used to sit stand around the jukebox. Wardell Gray had that that sound. The sound that. A lot of the guys wanted, uh, uh, 
saying guests got that sound from Wardell Gray and uh, the, the president, Lester Young. Young, yeah. I had, a, uh, dis- yeah. Had, a dis- had a discussion with Lester Young in a nightclub up in Canada uh, on his n- night off or t- uh, during a break. He, he, I was looking for something to drink in the club when I'm doing a break. Mm-hmm. He took me down in the cellar, the wine cellar. He said, let's go downstairs and get some real cognac. And we just talked. <laughs> I didn't tell him I was in the army. I didn't tell him I was a musician. But he, we talked a little bit the first and last time I saw Lester Young in person. Oh, oh man. The club on Young Street in uh, in Toronto, Canada. Yeah. That, that club was something. So, but other than that, these conversations with like Billy Eckstein mm. would, say, would say something backstage. He's telling us some art is introducing us to these guys. And mm-hmm. Louis Armstrong. And then Lionel Hampton. And we're shaking hands with the uh, man. And Lionel said, right, he called, called everybody Gates. Hey, hey, Gates, write something for my band, Gates. Write something for my band. Mm. Gates. <laughs> and there's Woody Herman. And so all of these people, man, I'm telling you, there's Duke Ellington. We're, 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 we're not, we're shaking hands with these people and mm-hmm. moving through. The, and there was a, uh, what's his name? Oh, I love it. Stumping the QLS. Yeah, stumping QLS. Go ahead, Wayne. Tim, I don't know. It's not Joe. Tad Dameron. Tad Dameron. Okay. These names, man. And there's the ladies, too. Oh, just shut up. Well, there's some ladies. The sweethearts of rhythm. Yes. Yeah, the sweethearts. Please say their names. Yes, yes. Yeah. And something about the clouds of, maybe that's originally, it was just clouds of joy or something like that. The Sweethearts of Rhythm. And there was uh, Slide Hampton, the Slide Hampton's sister, Gladys Hampton, played mm-hmm. drum. Okay. She was playing the drum. She played like Philly Joe Jones. And there's Gloria Bell, who was married to George Coleman. Gloria Bell played the bass. She I'm, had I'm the jam stick. She had give the these people some homework, Wayne. You are giving all these listeners some homework. I love it. Man, yes. listen, Reference for these, real. Say their names. Yes. Yeah, she had a, had a place up in Harlem called Connie's, where we did jam sessions at Connie's, and right across the street was uh, where, where uh, um, Small's Paradise. Yes. Across the street. We go back there and play, do, do the jam session. There's Nancy Wilson sitting in the audience. She was the secretary to uh, uh, Diane Carroll's husband at the wow. time. Wow. Kind of stuff, kind of stuff was going on. And uh, and the guy that Denzel Washington played as the gangster, the the guy who ran Frank Lucas. Yeah, the he be sitting under the bar, checking out who's coming and going, because they had the double park El Dorados outside, and some people came inside. Some of these high rollers, they would come inside and want to hear Miles play one note, and Miles go bang, and the guy put down a Big dollar, hundred dollar bill, and said, he said, "That did it. I came, I came to hear Miles, and I heard him." And it, <laughs> me. <laughs> this documentary is gonna be good. You need a scripted yes. movie too. We need everything. All it yeah. says. There's stuff going on. 
this is kind of a two-parter, but when we come back uh, for part two, I definitely want to get into um, your work on uh, your opera with, uh, you know, the great Esperanza Spalding and oh, yeah. the Ichfingenia, uh project. And so I, I thank you for this education. We're going to commence with a part two of Quest Love Supreme with the great Wayne Shorter. And uh, we hope you guys come and join us, okay? Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.